If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you don't know where it is, uh, that is okay. We are so glad you're here. Um, Turn to the end of the book and then hang a left. Just before you get to Revelation, you'll be in Jude. Let me rush to express my appreciation for our worship team. And, uh, you know, the phrase, a certain phrase comes to mind, and that is embarrassment of riches. Um, I, I just want to say, I'm sure you all know this, but Sammy Pointer is a absolute gift of the Lord to our faith fellowship. I keep asking him, hey man, uh, I know you're leading worship this week, but like, can I play the keys or can I play the bass or can I play the drums? Or, and he's like, just preach. I got it. And uh, it is true that it is much easier to preach when you have been led in worship the way that we have been uh, the last two weeks. So praise God. Praise team, you sound wonderful. Sammy, thank you for your leadership. Are you in Jude yet? Okay, let's read. Uh, Let's finish this book today, starting in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, a man standing on stage yelling at people for some amount of time is really just that. It's pointless. We have heard from the word of the living God this morning. And I pray that you would attend that word with the living spirit of God. Speak to us through your written word this morning. We beg you, Holy Ghost, we need your help. Help us to hear what your spirit has to say to your church through your word this morning. Amen. If you have ever flown on an airplane you are probably familiar with these words. In the unexpected event of a loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will fall automatically from the panel above your head. Do you recall what you were supposed to do in that situation? Yeah, you can answer if it's okay. Again, I grew up Pentecostal. Feel free, shout me down. Did you pay attention to the safety briefing on your last flight? Did you take the earphones out of your ear, Jackie, and listen to what the lady standing at the front had to tell you? I hope so. The flight attendant, if you aren't aware, gives the following instruction. Only when you have secured your own mask should you attend to children and other passengers. Now, I'll confess, as a kid, this always used to baffle me because at first, on first thought, it really sounds like bad parenting. Like, don't take care of your children. Take care of yourself. Save yourself. But there's a good reason why we put on our own masks first. It doesn't matter how noble your intentions are. If you pass out, you won't be any help to anybody else. Here, Jude has sounded the alarm. We heard the warning last week. The airplane that is the church, in this analogy anyway, has hit turbulence and the cabin pressure has dropped. Oxygen masks have fallen from above our heads. Now, what do we do? Well, we put on ours first. 
and then we help others put on theirs. I want to make one simple point to you in this message. Believers must contend for their own faith and for the faith of others. And the order is important. In our text this morning, we continue with Jude's instructions to contend against false teachers for the truth of the gospel. Last week, we heard the scouting report, if you are okay with me mixing metaphors, sorry, Miss Leah, uh, on these dangerous heretics. We learned how to recognize them. Today, we will learn how to defeat them. In the remaining verses, Jude tells us exactly how we are to go about contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Our text this morning gives us a biblical strategy for the gospel fight. Now, I'll help you with the structure here. I know when you hear this text read, you just hear command after command and and a lot of truth in a really small um, uh, section of scripture. It's very economical here. But the text is structured around the imperatives in verses 17 through 23. Let me give you a quick grammar lesson. There are indicatives, which are a statement of fact, and there there are imperatives, which are a command. Now, please don't get them confused. I know that some, uh, some of us in here have husbands, wives, you have husbands, and for their sake, don't confuse indicatives with imperatives. Here's what I mean. Sometimes Miss Carmen will walk past a trash can and she'll say something like, hey, babe, the trash is full. And I'll be like, wow, what an interesting observation. Thank you for letting me know. That is an indicative. What she meant to say was, hey, babe, get up right now and take the trash out. That is an imperative. And it's important that we know the difference. Wives, try it on. You'll be much happier. If you learn to just simply give him the imperative, babe, take the trash out. He'll be like, oh, okay. I hope anyway. Hey guys, we have DVR now. Pause the game. Go take the trash out. Anyway, you're welcome, ladies. So the text is structured around imperatives, commands, do this, don't do that. Circle these. If you're you're a circular in your Bible, if you're not, it's okay. But if you are like me and you write over everything, feel free to circle these verbs. In verse 17, we see the verb remember. In verse 21, keep yourself. In verses 22 and 23, we have sort of a triplet here. Have mercy, save, and show mercy. Um, the president of my seminary, Danny Aiken, in his commentary on the book of Jude, he builds his sermon outline around these imperatives. I think he's right to do that. Uh, and, and it feels like a bad time at our point in uh, history to not cite our sources. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to borrow three verbs from Danny Aiken's sermon outline. And I'm going to add one more on the end. Okay, so here are the verbs I'm going to borrow. Remember, remain, and rescue. And I'm adding this one, rest. We're going to see in this text this morning a four-part strategy for contending for the gospel. First for ourselves and then for others. The first part of this strategy is in verses 17 through 19. We remember God's word. We remember God's word. Jude goes out of his way here to build a contrast between false teachers and true believers. He starts with, but you, like, stop. Everything I've been warning you about, that's not you. You do this, but you must what? Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles. The false teachers that are warned about in verses 3 through 16, which we heard about last week, they don't heed God's warnings. They don't heed the warnings of the apostles. These false teachers, Jutes have already told us, they do not submit to the authority of God. These false teachers do not live lives marked by the gospel. And these false teachers do not possess the promise of eternal life with Jesus. But you, church... Beloved of God are different. You're different than them. You're not like them. You do submit to the authority of God as written in his word. You do live lives marked by the gospel, which changes us from the inside out. You do, beloved, if you're in Christ, possess the promise of eternal life 
with Jesus. You'll see the idea of being kept by God at several times in this text. Look at verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now at the very end, the other bookend of this passage, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. You possess the promise of eternal life. You are kept by God in Christ. We're not like those false teachers. We're different. We heed the warnings of scriptures. The apostates here ignored the word of God, trusting in their own authority. But as for you, Christians, you trust in the authority of God. God's word repeatedly warns us about false teachers. I mean, repeatedly. It's a, it's a, it's a wonder to me that we don't, we don't worry about false teachers. We say things like, oh, well, you know, I don't need to worry about that. That's, that's, a, that's a wonder to me because the scriptures are chock full of warnings about false teachers. Let me just address the New Testament here. Jesus warned us about false teachers in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Here's the only one I'll read. I'll just reference the others. That's not true. I'll read two of them. Sorry about that. If I can get my pages unstuck, I will do that. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus also warns us in Matthew 24, verses 11 and 14. Paul warns us repeatedly about false teachers. Uh, we'll start in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 32. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 9, which we read last Sunday. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Paul's not the only apostle who warns us. John warns us in 1 John chapter 2. And we just read it a few minutes ago, 1 John chapter 4. And also Peter, we got the clean sweep of apostles here just about. Peter warns us about false teachers throughout his second letter. And I do want to read a bit of First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this warning. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, and now Jude all warn us about the presence of false teachers. Here Jude gives his final warning in verses 17 through 19 about false teachers. He's actually quoting 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, when he says that they cause divisions, they are worldly, and they do not have the Spirit of God inside them. They cause divisions. They are proud, bombastic, and even abusive shepherds. They are worldly. They're in it for their own acclaim, or their big houses, or their humongous salaries. They do not have the Spirit of God inside of them. That is to say, they aren't believers at all. You can read about that in Romans chapter 8. Now, what are we to do about them? Well, we're about to find out, but let me give you a couple of quick notes before we move forward. <clears throat> Firstly, we as believers are to test all their teaching against the scriptures. Hear me, if you have your TV on, you're listening to a preacher or you're listening to a podcast and you hear something that doesn't sound quite right, run to the scriptures. Run to the scriptures and test what they have to say. Don't listen to false teachers. Test them. Any godly preacher will invite you to do that about their sermons. Feel free if you hear something wonky from this pulpit to run home and open your Bible and test what we have to say. We want to be found faithful with the text. Now, in great trepidation and at the risk 
of insubordination, let me give a quick charge to our elders. Part of your duty here in the local church is to protect the flock from the wolves that come in and seek to devour. I will prove that with the scriptures. You know this already. You're godly men. You're well-versed in the scriptures, but let me show you in first or in Titus verse chapter one, verses nine through 16, what you are to do about this. He, an overseer, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Ouch. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I praise God for godly elders who lead this church, godly shepherds who protect and care for the sheep. You know, a shepherd used to carry two things. One was the staff, which he would lovingly hook around the neck of the sheep to pull them back into the fold. But the other was a club. You know what the club was for? Not the sheep, the wolves. Elders, please hear this charge from the scriptures. Use your staff to lovingly bring our sheep back into the fold. And please do not hesitate to use the club to beat the daylights out of of wolves who are trying to steal the sheep of God. Part one of the strategy for the gospel fight here. We remember God's word. Part two of the strategy, we remain in God's love. Look at verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, I know you heard several commands here, but let me help you really quickly with the, with the syntax in the Greek here. The main command in view is in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The other commands there are participles, which let me just read you what Danny Aiken says because he's smarter than me. The participles building, praying, and waiting have an imperatival force. In other words, they have the force of an imperative because they're linked to the main command. What's the main command? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. What does it look like to remain in the love of God? Well, I'll give you a cheat code. Jesus told us already. So wait a second, where did Jesus tell us about keeping yourselves in the love of God? I'm so glad you asked. I'll point you to the farewell discourse. Pastor Jake preached about this maybe a year or so ago, maybe a little longer. John chapter 15, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples because he's about to leave them and he's going to leave them with the presence of the Holy Spirit. John 15, verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I'll skip down to verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Listen to what comes next. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Do you hear that? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus made it plain for us. We contend for the faith by obeying Jesus's commands. By reading the word and doing what it says. 
like a faithful wife, we keep ourselves in Christ's love by pledging ourselves to him and submitting ourselves to him. It's really quite simple. How do you keep from becoming like these teachers? You pursue holiness. You do what the book tells you to do. And he's not going to let us off that easy. Or maybe I'll say it this way. He's about to make it even more clear with these three participles. First, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Jude is giving us a threefold design for how to keep ourselves in God's love. First, build yourself up in your most holy faith. That phrase, your most holy faith, that's not a subjective faith. That's not like the intensity of how you believe. No, that phrase means the orthodox Christian faith built on the foundation of the apostles. What it's speaking of here is the truth that's found in the word of God. Build yourself up on the truth of God's word. Submit yourself to the word of God. Read it. It baffles me how many believers have 20 Bibles on their shelf and never read any of them? How on earth can we stand strong in this world that opposes God and is constantly preaching a false gospel to us? How can we possibly stand if we don't stand on the foundation of God's word? I have news for you. If you don't stand on God's word, you will fall down. You'll be swept away, Paul says, by every wind of doctrine. You got to stand somewhere. Stand on the foundation of God's word. Read it. Understand it. Learn it. And hear me. Obey it. We heard this two weeks ago from Pastor Jake. You can find that sermon online. The word of God doesn't do us much good if we don't obey it. There are plenty of scholars who are well-versed in the Bible and don't believe it or obey it, and therefore it is powerless for them. First, we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Second, we pray in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit, the text says. Now, this might be a little confusing. I've heard this text hijacked, and um, I've heard people argue that in this particular text that's talking about tongues. The conversation about tongues can happen another day. I'm thrilled to have that conversation with you. I don't believe that that's what this text in this book has in mind. I believe this is about praying prayers that are in accordance with the Holy Spirit that is within us. Prayer in accordance with the purposes and plans of God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, what does he do? He glorifies Jesus He leads us to truth and he convicts us of sin. Question. I hope you're wearing your steel-toed shoes. Is that what your prayer life sounds like? Let me repeat that. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, leads to truth, and convicts of sin. Is that what your prayer life sounds like? I'll be honest. So much of my prayer life, and I'm guessing probably yours, is self-indulgent, not spirit-led. I like it when it gets real quiet in the room. Can I just tell you the truth? Well, I'm going to. I'm wearing the microphone. Um, God is not a cosmic vending machine or a divine pinata that you keep smacking away at with your prayers until finally some candy falls out. God is not a cosmic Santa Claus who just wants to walk down your checklist if you've been nice and not naughty. No. Holy Spirit prayer is spirit-led. He's not a magic genie in a bottle. We need to learn to pray prayers that accord with the Spirit of God that glorifies Christ, leads to truth, convicts of sin, saves an old preacher who's no longer, well, he hadn't been with us in a long time, Alexander McLaren, defined this spirit-led prayer in this way. 
Prayer, which is not mere utterance of my own petulant desires, which a great deal of our prayer is, but which is breathed into us by the divine spirit. In short, we need to be praying like Jesus. Not my will be done, but your will be done. That's spirit-led prayer. The third part of this design for keeping ourselves in God's love is that we wait for the eternal mercy of the Lord. Read it with me in 21. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That word waiting there has a force to it. It really means to look with expectant certainty. It's like a child waiting for Christmas. Christmas is coming. The child knows that and they're waiting for it with an eager longing. I can't tell you how many times my son asks all year for me to open Spotify and play Jingle Bells. And I have to tell him, buddy, Jingle Bells is not for July. I'm sorry, it's too hot outside. I can't do Jingle Bells right now. Can we do VBS songs? So I'm happy to do that. It's like a child waiting for Christmas. Christmas is coming. They're waiting on a promise to be fulfilled. And so are we. This isn't a wish dream. We wait with expectant certainty that our Savior is coming soon. He is coming soon. He's almost here. We lock eyes on the Savior because he's coming back. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 says it this way. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to spend some time in 1 Peter. 1 Peter reminds us <clears throat> that we have strength to stand for God and even suffer for him because we have the certain hope of eternal life with Jesus. Let me tell you the truth. I would rather live with few friends and lots of enemies and end up in heaven than be celebrated on earth and go to hell. A false teacher has that exactly backwards. They'd love to be celebrated on earth and head to hell, but we'd rather have few friends and more enemies if it means we get to meet our Savior for eternity in heaven. As we contend for our own faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God, that is, we build ourselves up in the most holy faith, we pray in the Holy Spirit, we wait for the eternal mercy of the Lord, we should also then seek to contend for the faith of others. That brings me to part three in this strategy for the gospel fight. We've already seen that we uh, are called to remember God's word, we remain in God's love, and now we rescue God's people. We rescue God's people. Here's the context, in case you weren't here last week or you've forgotten, it's no big deal. The context is false teachers have crept into the church and God's people are at risk. God's people are at risk. There is, or there are wolves prowling around inside churches throughout this world, trying to snatch away the sheep that belong to the good shepherd. Christians are called to engage in the business of rescuing these sheep from the wolves. Now, we should know, as people who are doctrinally sound, that it is ultimately God who does the rescuing, of course. But we are called to participate in this rescue mission. It's very explicit here in this text. Christians are called to rescue God's people from false teachers. So look with me at verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Christians are called to show mercy to the doubting. The, doubt, the word doubt there means like those who waver. These people are teetering on the edge between belief and unbelief. We are to show mercy to them. Tenderly, tactfully, not aggressively or angrily. We don't have a lot of skyscrapers here in Mineral Wells, but if you could just slip on your uh, sanctified imagination with me. Imagine that you worked <clears throat> in an office building. We'll pick a number out of thin air and you're on the 37th floor. 
That's way up there. And you look out your office window and there's a man standing on the ledge threatening to jump. What tactic would you use to bring him into safety and off of that ledge? Would you tackle him? That would be a poor choice. Would you run at him, aggressively shouting, don't jump! Probably also a poor choice. You would entreat him. Oh, no, don't, don't, please don't jump. Come back, come back, come to safety. You wouldn't tackle him, you would entreat him. You don't snatch a jumper from a ledge, you calmly retrieve him. When people are wavering between belief and unbelief, we use tenderness and tactfulness and we use mercy. We entreat them to join us in the safety of following Christ. But Jude's given us three different strategies here. Look with me at the rest, at verse 23. We have mercy on the doubting, but watch this. We are called to save the dying. Save others, how? By snatching them out of the fire. That's an aggressive picture here. Now, let me be clear. That word save, I'm going to quote a scholar named John Calvin, one of the heroes of the faith. He says this, the word save is transferred to men, not that they are the authors, but the ministers of salvation. Isn't that the truth? We aren't the authors of salvation. We know who the author of salvation is. God is the author of salvation, but God has entrusted to us, what does 2 Corinthians 5 say? The ministry of reconciliation. God reconciling the world to himself. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you, be reconciled to God. There are some, I'm calling them here the dying, who need to be snatched out of harm's way. This is a much different tactic than for those who doubt or waver. We show mercy to these by aggressively snatching them out of the fire. Another scholar said it this way, firemen today literally do this rescue work. Do Christians? These kinds of people may need a more aggressive admonition. Hey, stop! You're headed in a bad way. Come back. It's like how you would snatch a kid out of a street where cars are coming, or away from the open flame of the campfire. I had um, a proudly Texan experience a few weeks ago. If you follow me on Facebook, you saw me write about it a little bit. We were, Wesley James and I were coming back from VBS, which paused the sermon. What a wonderful job our team did putting together VPS. My son is asking to listen to Mystery Island every single day. He loved it. We'll pray that the Lord produces some gospel fruit in those children uh, in the coming months. So we're coming home from VBS. It's about 8.45 at night, kind of getting in that twilight time of the day. We pull up and we're in the van and um, we get out of the van and Wesley James gets out first, which is normal practice. He's just quicker than his daddy, uh, much more energetic. So he gets out of the van and he starts walking toward the front door and I, I peel around the back of the van and I see at our front doorstep, like on the doorstep, a copperhead. Quick note, I am utterly terrified of snakes. Like it is my single greatest fear. To this point, I tell you the truth. You know when you fall asleep on your hand and it swells up and it gets all tingly? I promise you, when that happens to me, in my dreams, I have been snake bit. Like, I'm so scared of snakes. And now I see my five-year-old son, maybe 10 feet away, headed for a deadly copperhead. And so what does daddy do? I shout, and I grab him by the shoulders and scare the daylights out of him. I snatched him out of the way of the copperhead, made him sit in the van, and like a proud Texan, slayed that serpent. 
My first one, guys. I killed a wild hog the week before and a copperhead that day, and I, you, you got to take me now. I got to get my card in the mail. We keep a shovel by the door for that very reason. So I snatched my kid out of the way of danger. There are people in your lives who are headed in such a dangerous and deadly direction. They're walking straight into the fangs of a fiery serpent. They are headed to the fires of hell. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is snatch them out of the flames. That's part of what we're called to do. And here's why. The stakes couldn't be any higher. The stakes are much higher than playing in a crowded street or going near an open campfire. The stakes are eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And we ought to love our neighbors and our family enough to, if necessary, grab them by the scruff of the neck and yank them back from danger. Are you with me? We Christians ought to be a lot more like a young man named Edward Spencer. I'm going to read you this story. It's from, I just compiled it from two different newspapers and and took all their words. Around 2 a.m. on September 8th, 1860, a steamship called the Lady Elgin collided with a schooner called the Augusta in the waters of Lake Michigan near Waukegan, Illinois. The Lady Elgin was carrying almost 400 passengers and crew on a round-trip sightseeing tour from Milwaukee to Chicago. Its return trip was never completed. After the accident, the captain, not realizing how badly the ship was damaged, continued toward Milwaukee in the dark. About a half hour later, the heavy boilers and steam engine broke through the weakened hull and the ship quickly tore apart. Most of the passengers and crew died. Only a handful reached the lifeboats. Many passengers drowned while others clutched onto small pieces of wreckage. Some victims held onto floating debris for long hours in the cold water. Some swam for the nearby shore only to be pulled back into the breakers by a fierce undertow. Of the approximately 398 passengers and crew on the Lady Elgin that day, less than 100 survived. 17 people were saved that night by a Northwestern University student named Edward Spencer, who battled the breakers for six hours. An experienced swimmer, he had a rope tied around his body, and time after time he swam through the waves to grab exhausted passengers. His associates on the other end of the rope pulled them in, pulled him and the victim to shore. Finally, having reached the limits of his strength, his body covered with scrapes and bruises, Spencer passed out. He woke up in his room in Evanston where his brother William waited on his recovery. Listen to Edward's first words when he woke up. His first words were, Will, did I do my duty? Did I do my best? Oh, that that were the posture of Christians who watched their friends and their family headed right into the dangerous waters of unbelief. Oh, that that were our posture when we meet Jesus, when our eyes open in the presence of our Savior and we say, God, did I do my best? Did I do my duty? We are called to participate in the rescue of the dying The stakes couldn't be higher. We show mercy to the doubting. We save the dying. And the rest of verse 23 tells us we are called to show mercy to the dangerous. We show mercy to the dangerous. Hear this with me. To others, show mercy with fear or a trepidation here, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What on on earth does that mean? That means that we show mercy on the dangerous by practicing great caution. This is another tactic here. We love and pursue them, but don't put yourself at risk. 
that phrase there, hating the garment stained by the flesh, that really is speaking of everything that is in contact with pollution. Like if we see a particularly dangerous, maybe even one of these false teachers, we fear the sin and never put on the stained garment that they wear. For example, if you do any visits in the hospital, maybe you've had some family in the hospital and they've been under a contact precaution. Anyone ever experienced this before where you have to put on a certain gown before you walk into the room? Because if you touch something that they touched, you could get sick and then you can make others sick. That's the sort of idea we have here. We are supposed to put on the PPE or personal protective equipment that is the armor of God and enter the battle for their souls with some who are particularly deadly and dangerous in what they're involved in, embroiled in, teaching even. We fasten on the belt of truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. We lace up our gospel shoes. We put on the shield, we hold the shield of faith, put on the helmet of salvation, and we draw the sword of spirit, and we do battle for their soul. Why do we do it this way? Because sin is contagious. And hear me, beloved, you are not immune. You are not immune. With the dangerous, protect yourself, but engage. Don't let the sickness spread. For some, we are able to show mercy with great caution, but for some, we actually show mercy on these by practicing church discipline, which is something that is the responsibility of the elders to lead us in. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, Jesus is warning about people like this, and he says, treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. Now, do we desire, or did they desire the salvation of Gentiles and tax collectors? Yes, absolutely, or they should have. But this speaks of seeking their salvation, but not indulging or trifling with their sin. It's one thing to seek someone's salvation. It's another to let their sin infect the family of faith. Sometimes we need to get the sin out while we entreat the sinner to come back. We are called to contend for our own faith, and we're called to contend for the faith of others. But we realize that ultimately, only God can keep us from falling. That leads to part four of our strategy for the gospel fight. We've seen so far, we remember God's word. We remain in God's love. We rescue God's people. Now, the good news. We rest in God's victory. We rest in God's victory. Jude closes his letter with an absolutely stunning doxology. My wife picks on me all the time because every text that I preach is like my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, every story I preach is my favorite story in the Bible, but, and I say this a lot, but come on, these two verses? Oh, they're some of my favorite in the Bible. I hope there's some of yours too. What a doxology Jude tells us here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Ooh, Them's good words, right? Here's the truth, beloved. Our works accomplish nothing if they're not attended by God's power. We can rest, though, in the knowledge that the contest we've been called into, this fight, this battle that we've been commanded to engage in, this battle belongs to the Lord already. Only our God is all-powerful. Did you hear it in the text here? He is able to keep us from stumbling in our faith. Praise God for that, because I'm spiritually accident-prone. And I think you are too. If it were up to me to stay on my feet, oh, it would never happen. 
I'd be like that ship captain on the way back to Milwaukee. I'd just keep driving the boat and eventually sink it. But God is able to keep us from stumbling in our faith. I've mentioned it already, but I'll mention again this theme of keeping or being kept for Christ. I read you verse 1 already, that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Jude is written to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. And Jude ends with the truth that God is able to keep us. Let me tell you the truth before I read you one other verse. We could never keep ourselves if he hadn't already committed to keep us. 1 Peter chapter 1. Some stunning verses here, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is able to keep you from stumbling in your faith. Only our God is able to make us blameless before him. Only our God is able to complete our joy. Only our God is all-powerful. And only our God deserves all glory. He is our Savior who saves us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let me urge you, if you're dancing in the fire, let me snatch you back right now. If you're doubting, I pray the Spirit would entreat you to come to safety. Let me tell you where to find it. Find your rescue in Christ alone. Because beloved, if you try to earn salvation on your own, you will never get there. And I think you know that. I think you can look inside your own heart and see the filth in there. I think you can see that you've broken every one of the Ten Commandments. Isn't that the point of the law? To show us what God requires and to show us our utter inability to meet it? There has only been one man in the history of the universe who could earn for himself salvation. He was righteous before God completely every single day of his life. And that man was God himself in the flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he offers it. He offers salvation to you and to me. People who bring nothing to the table except for the sin that needs to be redeemed. Jesus climbed up on a cross. He poured out his life so that you and I could be counted righteous before the thrice holy God. If you don't believe that this morning, today is the day. Get out of the way of the fire. Get out of the way of the copperhead. Stop running toward danger and run toward Christ. He can save you. He will save you. If you don't know him, I'm begging you, please don't leave here today without meeting him. I've put you on the spot twice now. I'll do it again. Elders, will you please raise your hand? If you need to know how to follow how to submit your life to the Savior who offers you forgiveness from sin, I urge you to find one of these men, most of whom have already put their hands down, or me after the service, I'll be standing right there singing. Please come talk to us about what it means to know and follow Christ. We don't want you to leave this room today and head right back out into the fire. Ours is the only God who's able to save through the finished work of Christ. He alone embodies all glory and majesty. He holds eternal dominion and authority over all things. These false teachers claim their own authority and they despise holy authority. Jude's already warned us. But Jude reminds us that God has had the authority from the very beginning and he is still on his eternal throne. 
as believers engaged in the fight for the gospel, we are called to build ourselves up on, in our own faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God, submitting ourselves to his word and to spirit-led prayer while we wait for the full realization of our eternal hope. We are compelled to help the doubters find their rest in his word and the comfort of his grace, to implore those who have lost their way to escape the fire and come to Christ, and to beg the dangerous to stop leading others astray and submit to God's authority. As believers, we are pleased to exalt the one who is able to keep us from falling and present us blameless in him through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. God, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Even to the point where you have repeatedly warned us about those who would try to lead us into death and destruction. Help us, God, to heed the warnings of Scripture. Not to be deceived by false teachers and false gospels, but to submit ourselves to your word to commit ourselves to the mission of rescuing the dying and to be pleased for all eternity to worship the one true living and almighty God. Help us to believe your word, to engage your word, to obey your word, and to implore others to do the same. We pray these things in your name. Amen.